Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Kevin, are you going to fall asleep? How long have you been in the bubble? Are you still with us, yeah. Martin? Are you still okay? What's happening with you? Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, where are we? About day 22 or something in the bubble, I think. And uh, no, but we're, we're hanging in there. It's uh, It's been, the curling's been fantastic. So it's uh, it's been okay, actually. Uh, but uh, I am tired of my room and <laughs> being in it like uh, a lot of hours of every day. Warren, how are you doing? You did the wraps all this week. What's going on with you? It's good. Weather out here right now is fabulous. So uh, it's it's been a good week. You always tell me that, Warren. Okay, you always tell me the weather's great. You know, I'm sick of it, Kevin. Tell Warren. Yeah, it's 25 degrees here. It's 25 degrees. Come back to Edmonton, okay, and toughen up. Let's get rolling. We got to put together another show. Thanks everybody for joining us. Here we go. Last Rock, eighth end, up by two. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. It's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Ben. Don't kill it. Don't kill it. Line's really good. Line's good. Right on the button, guys. Right Last here, guys. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Okay, boys, here's what's coming up on the show today. We've got packed. It's packed, and we've got a special guest, but uh, each of you guys is going to give us your general impression of what's happened this week uh, with the Humpties uh, Grand Slam uh, in Calgary, of course. Uh, there was a slight adjustment to some of the rules there, uh, in particular the tick zone. We want to know what's going on there. We just went through the uh, World Men's Championship in this past week, a Grand Slam event made up of internationally ranked teams. Might there be room for a new international type of competition? We're going to talk about that. And of course, our Facebook group is very active and Warren is going to bring us up to speed on all that. And we have a unbelievable guest coming on the program today. Rachel Holman is going to join us. Kevin, let's get to you first. Uh, you're still still in the bubble, but there's tons and tons of curling going on. Kevin, uh, why don't you give us a, your thoughts on what happened this week at the Humpties? Yeah, well, the Humpty Champions Cup was a fantastic event, and it was kind of neat to watch some of the teams that hadn't played a lot, like uh, oh, Tabitha Peterson from the U.S., her first game of the year, of the season, of the entire season, was the first game in the Champions Cup. So, you know, there's lots of that where some of the teams that had come from the Scotties or the Briar or mixed doubles, of course, had played some, but the international teams that came in, a lot of them hadn't curled yet. So, so that was really neat. Obviously, the no noise in the crowd when these big shots are being made by the very best competitors in our sport. And then there's, you can hear a pin drop. Like that was weird from me being in the, in the building and in the commentator booth. That was strange. One thing that's kind of neat though, uh, with the champions cup is, uh, you know, we, we got the ratings when it came to the Scotties and the Briar and, and they were down across the board. We talked about that a few weeks ago. So I was worried when it came to the slams, okay, what's going to happen? Like, is this something that's going to happen everywhere? So if we look back at the last slam, that was January of 2020, and the one before that, December of 2019, the ratings for the Humpty's Champions Cup this week were about 9% up across the board. So good, yeah, like they're not sky high, but 9% up is, you know, that's a very positive a jump. So I'd like, you know, I think if we want to kind of wrap up sort of how the Champions Cup went, I would say it went very well. We had terrific games in the semifinals and finals, and ratings were strong. So our fans loved it. Great, huge success. Uh, before we bring Warren in to get his reaction on the week, Kev, I got a question for you. What do the Grand Slam events mean, Kevin? Break it down. And I don't mean emotionally for the teams. I mean statistically. 
How important is it to win these events? Does it qualify you for bigger events? Can you get to the Olympic trials because of Grand Slams? Uh, can you get to your national championships, Briars or Scotties? Uh, break it all down for us, Kevin, and tell us what it means. So that's interesting. So yes, um, there's a difficulty of field and the prize money. So with the Grand Slams, of course, having a big prize money and the absolute most difficult field, because to get in, you have to be the, the top. <laughs> it's only the top 12 that get in off the women and the men. So that that's it. So when it comes to getting points on the tour, this is where I think the angle you're coming from, that'll get you into your provincials at the different provincials across uh, the country. Well, it can get you in the national championships too, because now the, the top ranked teams also get in. So the slams are absolutely huge uh, for all the teams internationally and Canadian, as far as where they fit in the pecking order in their particular country, province, uh, whatever the case may be. So that's why the top teams, they just don't say no to slams. They're always, they always come, they always compete because the, uh, the winning of points is worth so much. And I think that's, uh, that's really important. Now, obviously winning the slams, it's the best against the best. You know, that, that's how you prove where you fit in our sport is when every top team is in the event and you win it. Obviously you've climbed to the top of the heap for that week. Uh, not a lot different than golf or tennis in that way. Do you ever see it going bigger than six events, Kevin? The four major events, the Canadian Open, the National, the Players' Championship, and the Masters, that's your big four. Can you see the Grand Slam property involving more events? Sure, why not? There's no, no problem with that. But the four major events, I, I don't see that changing anytime soon, like it is in tennis, like it is in golf. Uh, and if people don't know this, Kevin, this was your invention. Well, this, that goes back a long time. Yeah, you know, it's it, it, L. Clouston and myself, we started the thing called the West Edmonton Mall Curling Classic, and it worked. We sold the building out, and we had uh, black tie-served food and drinks in the crowd, and it was an, an idea that nobody had ever done, and it worked. And then we brought in Wild Bill Hunter as a partner and expanded even bigger into uh, the Flexicoil event in Saskatoon. And then that kind of all shut down. Bill, uh, unfortunately, got cancer, and that all kind of went away, but... One thing it proved to me that the idea of playing for money in arena settings made sense as a business model. So then, yes, myself and I got together with the president of IMG Canada, Kevin Albrecht, in 1997, and I just told him this crazy idea I had, and he loved it, and that's how it all started back in the late 90s. Warren, uh, you were at home, of course, watching this on TV. What what'd you think of the whole week? thought it was a great week of curling. I would suggest some of the most spectacular shots I've ever seen were, were made in that week. And uh, I, I can remember one in particular when Botcher lost to Mowat in the semifinal game. And this 20-foot angle raise takeout for the win was uh, probably the shot of the week. Last try. Bruce Mowat, eighth end, trailing oh, by one. Bobby Lamy digging in. The bump, is it enough? C. C. It rolls. Hard, hard, you gotta go. Gotta go, go, go. Come on, my boy. And it's enough. Great shot. No kidding. What a shot. Takes two and wins. Wow. What a scrub. What a finish to hold and get the win. Makes contact with Shotstone, and there's the question. Can you hold it? And it, it holds only by a few inches. The weight was the key. Great shot. And uh, I, I just looked, saw the look in Botcher's face when he made that. It was just sort of like it drained everything out of him, but just a lot of great shots. I thought another interesting thing with the Grand Slam event, Sportsnet has developed a little different way of coverage. They've come up with a approach they call around the rings, where you actually see uh, the shots made by the skips and the final of every end of every game. And so you're not just concentrating on one game, you're seeing everything. I really like the concept. I think it's fantastic because you now know what's going on in every sheet of ice. You're not waiting for some point in time that there's going to be a summary done. And uh, I think it's a way of the future. Interesting on our Facebook group, a lot of people really love it. Some don't, and I think primarily those who don't may be a little older because, again, they're stuck on watching one game from start to finish. But I like the Around the Rings concept, and uh, you'll be seeing that again this week with the Players' Championship. You don't hand them out easily, Warren. Compliments, okay? You're tough. You're a tough-skinned guy. And yet, talking earlier before we came on air, you are 
completely amazed and have this newfound respect for Team Scotland. Yeah, yeah, those guys are uh, are fabulous. And then Kevin and I were having a little, little chat earlier today. We think that uh, you know Moat and Botcher are going to be the two teams in the in the years ahead that are going to be fighting out for most of this stuff because of their age and because of their abilities. I'm sure there's going to be some others there, but uh, both those guys are going to be very, very hard to beat moving into the next five to 10 years. What are you telling your son, Kev, in these weeks? Yeah, my advice to those guys is just enjoy it. They've got to be having a blast. Like, they're doing well. You don't win every event you're in. You just But to get to finals and give it your best go against another team that's on fire and you know, they just got outplayed by uh, team mode in that final, and but they just won the Briar. And, you know, yeah, they're doing great. I just said, just enjoy yourself. <laughs> like, just, you know, and here you are going into the Players' Championship. Well, battle again. Have fun. The amazing thing with both those teams, when you listen to them on the RF mics, nothing scares them. Uh, every shot that you can take a look at and you're going to yourself, wow, that's pretty difficult. They just take a look at it as if, yeah, we're going to make this. And they usually do. So it's quite amazing to watch. One of the things that happened in this event, uh, Kevin, there was an adjustment made to the rules this past week uh, in regard to the tick zone. Tell us all about that, Kev. Well, the idea is that uh, watching the, uh, be it the the Briar Scotties, Worlds, whatever the case may be, even early in the game, the second or third end, teams would start to tick the rocks off the center when they had last rock. And it takes a lot of the entertainment out of those ends because now, you know, it's, it's wide open and it's either a blank or whatever the case may be. So I know the World Curling Federation is interested in this idea of a no-tick zone. Um, curlers definitely are. So if the lead throws it on the center line, if it, the rock is touching the center line, you couldn't move it off the center line until the sixth rock of the end. It had to stay there. So what happens is when you're coming home and you're trying to steal, you throw the first two rocks on the on the center line with a great deal of distance between them, and they can't start hitting them until the sixth rock. Woohoo! There's a lot of action. And it turned out to be more steals. I'm actually uh, waiting to hear from uh, from Jerry Gertz, who looks after all the stats, of exactly how many more steals. I, I'll bring that to you next week, I promise, on our next podcast. But um, there were definitely more steals. And do all players like that? Nope, not all. But I know as a fan, with the no-tick zone, I'm not going to turn away. Because I know who, who there's a chance they could steal. Whereas in the regular curling where you can tick off, off the rocks with two good teams, you're down to about an 8% or 13% chance to steal. And that's not very much of a chance. And therefore, I think we lose a lot of viewership. And that's not good for our game. So uh, safe to say, um, Kevin, that someone's first rock, uh, they're going to keep it on the center line all the time? No, not all the time. It depends on the scoreboard. If you need to steal, you will. If you're, you know, tied up or winning, you'll probably throw it in the house. So it's it's a strategic ploy. But uh, and it used to be the tick shot was only used late in the game. But as teams evolve, they're using it all game, and that's, in my opinion, it takes away from the entertainment value of the game. Early, I really like this the, the tick zone. I like the way it worked last week. I thought it added quite a lot to the last, uh, especially the last few ends of every curling game. And if I throw up the uh, the center line, okay, first rock, Kev, my next one, am I, I'm trying to draw into the house then? Is that how this all affects the game? Well, maybe. Yeah, that's all the strategy of the game. Uh, it's always by the scoreboard. Like, I always skipped according to the scoreboard. Most people would. A scoreboard, that means the score and the end, what end you're in, be it even or odd and how late in the game. So yeah, curling strategy is a lot like chess. It's a, it's a very complex thing, but to make it more exciting for the crowd, the tick zone makes sense. What do you know? I just read you won 18 grand slams. What do you know? <laughs> <laughs> Who's closest to your record? Glenn Howard. I believe he's at 16, but uh, he's coming for you. He's coming, he's coming for, for you. me, but, but Glenn's getting a little old. So I think, <laughs> Sorry, Glenn. I know Glenn will be mad at me now, but oh well. Uh, Warren, what's your take on the whole thing? You were looking at our Facebook group. Uh, you've always got lots to say. What What do you say about this rule? From what I could see, I think it tended to direct more play towards the center. And seemingly a number of ends built up with a lot of rocks in the house towards the center, which I think is good because if I go back to the concept of mixed doubles when it developed that, that was the whole aim, was the fact you can score multiple ends by forcing the play towards the middle. And uh, mixed doubles has proved that to be true. 
And I think in the four-person game, to play towards the middle is how multiple ends are scored. Probably using corner guards, that could develop in a three, but probably not that often, more likely a two. But towards the middle, multiple points can be scored. And I think that's sort of what this thing tended to do from my observation of it. I also want to uh, read a little email that was sent to me. Kevin and I both know this gentleman, James Dryberg. And here was his suggestion. I'll get Kevin's comment. He says, loving the no tick on the center line, but this doesn't help the team with the hammer. What about two extra lines from the edge of the eight foot up to the hog line? If there is a guard in those lines, that can't be ticked until the sixth rock of the end has been thrown. What do you think of that one, Kevin? Well, you saw in the 10th end, or 10th end, the eighth end uh, of the men's final when uh, Carrick threw up the corner guard and they're trying to get three to uh, to come back in the game against Moet. And uh, uh, Hammy, uh, Moet's lead, actually chipped the corner guard into the rings over by the side and rolled the shooter out, Carrick threw a corner guard, and Hammy came around, tapped it out, and in essence, the three is over. You can't get three then. So you're right. As as the game evolves, James is probably right. We, we're probably going to need something like that. It might be a little bit soon. Like, let's let everybody swallow the the tick zone first <laughs> in the middle. But but going forward, you're right. And that's uh, that's a defense that uh, Brad Jacobs invented about two years ago that Bruce Mowat has adopted, and, and Hammy is making that shot more than he's missing it. So is the jury out for you, Kevin, on this, this new rule that they tried? Well, the centerline one, definitely. I, I like that. I've, I've thought it would, it would be a good idea for years. The corner guard one, though, not many people chip the rock into the rings. That's a very new uh, defense strategy that Bruce Mowat has adopted from Brad Jacobs. But now that people are doing it, obviously, Leeds will practice it more and it'll become standard practice eh, in the next few years. You're talking about chipping your opposition's rock into the rings, right? Right, but you can't knock it out of play. So it's it's a very tricky shot, but if you practice anything enough, you'll get good at it. So Warren, you're yay or nay? You're good with what they tried? From what I've seen so far, yes. And I, I know I get in our Facebook group, got lots of people that are very critical of it, but it's new, it's a change. And I think the big thing with curling today, we're struggling a bit to some degree, and it has been not just happening yesterday. This goes back to the 80s. We've been struggling to make the game a little more offensive because I think we know with most sports, uh, defense doesn't sell, offense does. And I think that's the issue with curling. And I'm going to go to mixed doubles. Mixed doubles, you can be three up and you're never out of danger. And I think the way curling has been going at the four-person level, one up with a hammer, for the most part, you're out of danger. And I think that uh, we don't want that to become too, uh, too much of an assumption. And we need things to make sure that any possibilities always exist. The World's Men's Championship uh, a couple weeks ago now. That was uh, congratulations to Adine. Uh, good job. Uh, and this week was the first Grand Slam that was made up of the top 12 internationally ranked teams. The question is, might there be room for a different type of international competition? What do you say, Warren? Again, this is something Kevin and I have talked a lot about in the fact that curling is the only major Olympic sport in the winter side that does not have a World Cup. And a World Cup differs from a World Championship, and the World Cup is the best players in the world, not necessarily the country becomes the attachment. It's the best players in the world. Some of the sports, like the sliding sports, they say that a country can have a maximum of three players or three athletes in the in the sport. Maybe that would have to happen here, but it'd be very much what we're doing right now in these Grand Slam events. They're virtually a World Cup, the way they're being run right now, because it's the 12 best teams in the world, not the 12 best countries. And the world championships are country against country. This is virtually player against player, but you're still representing a country, but it's a a slightly different approach to life. And I think into the future that a World Cup uh, format for for curling is essential, and I think it uh, could be a huge attraction. Do you agree, Kev? Well, uh, I did a little bit of homework, Jimmy. I'm in the bubble, so I got lots of time to do homework. So let's think of a 16-team World Cup event where, to Warren's point, you can only have three teams from any country, okay? So going down the current teams, you'd have your three top Canadian teams because you're only allowed three Canadian teams. You'd have Anna Hasselborg, Tatsuki Fujisawa, Alina Stern, Sylvana Terenzoni, Eve Muirhead, Tabitha Peterson, Minji Kim, Alina Kovaleva, Unjun Kim, Saki Yoshimura, Unju Jim, Isabella Rana, 
and Kuwana from Japan. You'd have three Canadians, three Japanese teams, three Korean, two Swedes, two Swiss, a Scot, U.S., and a Russian. There'd be eight nations involved in the World Cup women's. I think it would be an absolutely terrific event. And if you look at the men's, you'd have your top three Canadians, Bruce Mowat, Yannick Schroller, Nicholas Adine, Peter DeCruz, Ross Patterson, Corey Dropkin out of the U.S., Rich Runin out of the U.S., Yuta Matsumura, Japan, Ross White is a Scot, uh, John Schuster, Chang Min Kim from Korea, Yap Van Dorp, Netherlands, uh, Thomas Olsrud, Norway. So you'd have three Canadians, three Scots, three U.S., two Swiss, a Japanese, Korean, Netherlands, Norway, Sweden. You'd have nine nations represented. I think the World Curling Federation would love it. You have, uh, under today's rankings, you would have eight different nations represented in women's, nine in men's. It would be a true world championship, but it would be called the World Cup, and only the very top nations and top teams are allowed in. I think it's be absolutely fantastic. So I, I get Canada has three teams. Uh, these other teams that only get one, Kevin, is that just because they don't have the depth? But they just don't have the teams in the top. It's world ranking. Yeah, it's a world ranking. So the reason I say the top three Canadians, because in both men's and women's curling, we have far more than, than three teams in the top 16. Like we have way more than that. But only three can come. Whereas the slams are your top 12. If there's seven Canadians and uh, three teams from South Korea and three from somewhere else, that fills up the event. I love that event because it's the best of the best. But the World Curling Federation would like to see more countries involved. So you can't have seven from one nation. That's no good for the World Curling Federation. So that's why these World Cup events and very, well, lots of sports only allow your top three from each country. So that's why I read out to you who the 16 would be. And it is terrific. So if I'm not going to make the top three in Canada, I'm going to take my team. I'm going to go over to Switzerland. I'm going to curl there. Huh? <laughs> um our Facebook group, Warren, bring us up to speed. What's going on there? Well, we've had lots of activity on our Facebook group over this last uh, few weeks, lots of discussions, and uh, I invite all of you, if you aren't members, to join. Uh, among other things, I do a daily wrap there, and when Kevin's available, he does it, but certainly he won't be doing any of this week because he's busy, busy. We've got all kinds of discussions going on, and other people are starting. There's currently one been going on about the tick zone, lots of very vigorous comments there. The Sportsnet around the around the rings concept. Again, some people really like it, some not that much. Again, lots of discussion. One here I just read this morning. How far can sweepers carry a stone? Lots of opinions on that one. Another one. Why has John Morris become so vocal with Kevin Cooey? Lots of comments on that one. So we invite you to join our group. Uh, we put up uh, interesting things on occasion, including a lot of historic information. And uh, come and uh, join us and have some fun. Okay, boys. Uh, like that. Quick as the whistle, we're through the show because uh, we've got a fantastic guest coming up who I'm very anxious to talk to, one of the most successful curlers in the world. When we come back, Rachel Holman is in the house. Last rock, Alina Pets for Team Tirenzoni. Eight then, needing two. Got to come off the yellow. Yellow on the red. What a try. What an effort, but not enough. It will be Rachel Holman back in the winner's circle at the Calgary Bubble taking the Humpties Champions Cup. Six three, the final score. Holman gets her record eleven Grand Slam title. She has top of the list anyhow, and she adds one more to her total. Oh yes, Hark! What is that? That's a knock at the door. Okay, let's see who it is. Let's open the door. Rachel Holman, come on in. How are you, Rachel? I'm great. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good. Listen, first of all, uh, congratulations. You Less than 24 hours ago, you win the Humpty's Grand Slam. Uh, you were in the finalist in the Scotties. You're probably getting tired of this, but it's so remarkable what you've done over the last couple of months. You were 
eight months pregnant when you're in the Scotties. Then you you slip away to have have a baby, and you come back, and you win the Humpties. I mean, that's incredible. First of all, how's the baby? Tell us name and when it was born and all that jazz. How's the child? Uh, she's great. She was born March 25th. Her name's Bowen, and uh, she's growing like a weed. She's eating lots and sleeping lots, as newborns do, and um, getting lots of snuggles in. But, uh, yeah, it's been really great and kind of was thinking about if she came a little bit before a due date that um, – I was looking at curling after, but not sure. You never know. Going into delivery, you can't really make any plans. Right. So I just thought I'd see how it goes and wasn't sure if I could <laughs> slide, but um, I tried it out and, and felt okay. So just went with it. And sleeping through the night, not keeping you up all night? <laughs> not even close. I got a, a couple two-hour stretches once in a while, but um, other than that, she's uh, eating around the clock like newborns do. So Good. Not much sleep, but, um, I mean, that's a part of it, right? Uh, I'm your coach now, okay, uh, <laughs> of your team, okay? Now, you're going to have to listen to me, okay, because this is what I would first tell you right away as a coach. You've been so successful the last couple of months, so you got to get pregnant every year for the next 10 years, and you're going to win everything in sight, okay? That's, uh... <laughs> I've heard that a little bit. Yeah, I bet you have. Uh, before we get to Kevin's going to jump in a second, how did you possibly pull all this off over the last couple of months to be able to do this? What, were you second-guessing it at all um, to go into the Scotties and even after to come back? And I mean, most women would be off for nine or ten months on a normal maternity leave, but not you. How did you do it all? Yeah, I mean, I think it's different for everybody. I mean, some people don't get any mat leave either. Um, I'm definitely not the only one, but it. Uh, I mean, I didn't really think about it. I just told the girls that if we were in the Scotties that I'd play and um, I didn't really think too much about it, but eight months comes along and things are definitely more painful than you can anticipate. Um, but I was still able to slide. And I mean, COVID made really challenging because normally in a curling season, you can keep sliding and as your body changes, you can keep practicing and see how it feels. But we were off for almost two months as I kept getting bigger and, and things were changing for me. So my husband actually built a, a rink out in the back to just to see if I could slide because uh, there was no real other option. And then I was able to slide. Okay. So then we went and, and <laughs> were able to practice a couple times as a team before the Scotties kind of here and there where it was allowed. And then the practices went well. I could only do so much because uh, it was definitely some physical limitations and a little bit of pain. So I didn't want to push or injure myself. Um, and so, we, I mean, we relied on years and years of practice and throws and, and our ability and our confidence. We're a new team, so definitely some growing pains and learning about sweeping and throwing and communication, all that that comes with having a new team. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of had that on top of COVID and no practice and <laughs> eight months pregnant. So I'm just really proud of the team for, for doing as well as we did and obviously came up a little bit short, but Anderson's a a phenomenal team and uh, they're going to do Canada so proud. Um, we're really excited to watch them and, and really happy that they're able to to go to worlds because they kind of got ripped off last year and mm -hmm. it'll be a, they'll be a great representative for Canada. So we're, we're obviously disappointed that we couldn't quite win that last game, but uh, we'll be cheering loud here back, back at home while they're uh, staying in the bubble forever. It seems like. <laughs> Rachel, what's the toughest part about being in the bubble? We've we've had a number of guests on during it. Kevin's been great with lining people up, and we thank you very much for coming on. We know you're busy. You got to hit the ice again tomorrow at noon for the players. Mm -hmm. What did you find the most difficult about it, or what are you finding the most difficult about it? To be honest, I think just leaving my little guy at home has been the hardest. Uh, just being away from family because we're we're so close that we would be able to to bring him or see him on the road. But when you're stuck and you can't go anywhere it uh i don't know i just you feel it a little bit more maybe when when you know normally that they could be here and mm -hmm. and watching and enjoying the journey and experience with you i mean curling's uh we love the game but we also love being able to experience it with our friends and family and i think that's been the toughest part but um other than that it, it really feels like a, a normal event because it's, you're so busy i mean the scotties we never really get to to do much go anywhere <laughs> Um, we eat a lot of our meals in the room and 
there's not really much time for socializing. You're just trying to recover. And then the slams, there's a bit more downtime. Usually you can see some friends and family there. So I think that's maybe the toughest part, mm -hmm. but um, it doesn't seem too far out of the ordinary. Um, well, I, we've also been in and out. So, I mean, I'm speaking <laughs> to uh, my own experience, but I know some people have been in the bubble for a lot longer. And I know I went uh, for a walk with Val and Carrie the other day, and um, I can't imagine being here for 45 days. <laughs> I'm here for two weeks and I'm missing my little guy. So I, everyone's experience is different. Um, and the amount of time that you're in the bubble can definitely be challenging. Mm -hmm. But we're just all so excited that we can curl. We've been at home for a year, pretty much. And weren't sure if we could compete ever, like ever again. You know, you, you don't, there's, it just keeps, the numbers just keep going up and things mm -hmm. are still a little bit scary uh, as to what normal is going to look like moving forward. And this is kind of our lives. We We love to compete. We love the sport and, we're hoping that things can get back to being able to compete in front of fans. But as of right now, I mean, we're just thankful. All the work is just tremendous, the amount of work that's gone into putting this on and, and making sure that people feel safe and all the volunteers and, and all of Curling Canada and Sportsnet, we're just thankful. And so the days away, you're just, it's a part of uh, what it takes to, to be here. Well, you're competing, my friend. You're doing very well. <laughs> Kevin? How old is Riot now? He'll be two in June. So, so he'll be two in June. So, yeah. So, uh, of course, uh, being a grandpa, mm -hmm. uh, you always think about, you know, you hear about a baby Bowen, but we don't hear much about what Riot's thinking of having a, having a little sister and uh, and how he's, how he's thinking about that being a two-year-old. <laughs> yeah, it's... We weren't sure if he quite got it, but um, <laughs> since we've been gone, uh, he's seen her on TV and, and myself, and, and apparently he's yelling out mom and baby Bo. So that's been kind of cute that he, we kind of realized that, oh, maybe he did get it. <laughs> and he, he mostly just points to her and, and laughs when she makes funny noises. So it is, it'll take, uh, I think, a few months for uh, him to interact and, and really get it. But yeah, I think he's... A little bit young, but it'll come soon. Oh yeah, he'll get into the cuddling soon enough. Hey, so let's get into a little bit of curling here, with, and I'll let Warren in here in, in a bit. But it was a big team change, really. And to your point, you haven't had a lot of time to to really get into it with the new team, and then all of a sudden you show up with the new team at the at the Scotties, and you do so well, and then you go on to the the Champions Cup and you win it. So I guess I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on on your new front end with Sarah coming in at second. Uh, and moving Joanne to lead, and I guess sort of how do you decide, because Joanne is one of the best seconds in the game, but so Sarah. So I guess how do you decide mm -hmm. who's lead, who's second on this new setup? Yeah, I think Sarah kind of brings that wealth of, uh, of back-end experience and the strategic mindset, and I think anyone on this team would, would play any position. Uh, we just, it's going so well, and we're all just doing what we need to do to to win and, and that's playing whatever position is required. And Joe's really excited. She's played lead in the past and really wants to become the best lead in the world. And Sarah's gone down to second. She's previously played back end and, and has a lot of experience in the strategy side. And it just brings that sweeping IQ and um, just even another, another voice in for looking at different options from, from the other end. And it's been uh, really great. It's been a, she's fit in so well and just brings so much to the game, whether it's strategy or sweeping or, or throwing smarts. It's been a really, really great transition. And I think as seamless as, as you possibly can with a new team, with no practice, with COVID, <laughs> I think we've um, really gelled really quickly. And I mean, obviously you're going to make mistakes and, and you're learning communication and you're learning different throws and if we could have had you know more more training reps and more throws we would have been able to see a little bit more technical and and fine-tune that but I think everyone's on the same page where not everyone's technical is where they want it to be and so you're throwing to make it and relying on your experience and she has so much experience whether it's worlds or big slam finals she's played in it all and so it's been really great and she's fit in so well and and such a, a team player it's been a really fun experience as uh, little time as we've had together. 
You know, I, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. It seems to me that as we're looking at the top uh, female teams in the world, and, you know, if you look at, uh, for example, um, geez, let's go to Anderson, of course, why not, the Canadian champion, mm. with such strong lead and second sweepers, like really strong sweepers. And then look at your team with now Sarah and Joanne. I don't even know which of the two would be stronger. They're both really strong. Yeah. And then you've got Esther Neuenschwander, you've got Agnes Nachenhauer on Hasselborg's team. Is there something a bit of a, maybe a, I'm not sure, I shouldn't say change maybe, but it's, it seems to be following almost like the men's game where where the teams that are successful have brute strength, if I can say that about a females. Yeah, absolutely. But your thoughts on that? It seems to be that um, it's really changed that way in, in the women's game. That, that You need that muscle up front. Yeah, I mean, you see the men's game and for us, we've, we've seen them and we able to play with a little bit of their sweepers, the Connell Cup, and we're, we're just like, how do you guys miss? <laughs> They're just able to control the rock so well. Obviously, women don't have as much pressure on the broom, but if you have that extra strength and that extra gear, just makes your game that much better and you're able to, to throw shots that maybe other teams can't. And so it's, it's definitely a huge part of the game. But I think also you're seeing back-end players play that second position because of the five-rock rule, because of how the game has changed and, and the position of second has evolved. I think you almost need a back-end player there. And um, I think that's kind of where the game is going and where our team has made that change and trying to evolve with the game and, and trying to stay at the top of our game is is has really uh, worked well for us. And, I mean, Anderson's same you know, they all have back-end players, but they've got that back-end player at second as well. And you see how successful they are. Huh. I've never heard, I've never heard anybody say that. that. That's really interesting. I've never heard that being said by anybody that, mm-hmm. um, but you're right. <laughs> Actually, if you think about it, I just had never thought about it. Warren? Yes, I was uh, certainly impressed with the sweeping ability of both the teams in the final yesterday. I thought uh, it was excellent. And I actually made a comment in my little rap last night and the fact that I said, Really impressive the fact that both of those teams in the ice look so athletic and uh, kind of makes me feel good over the times that we tried to get the the image of the sport changed to be more athletic that uh, it has evolved to that point. Anyway, a question, Rachel. Um, we have been toying back and forth with the fact that the five rock rule was not allowing the chances to score that uh, it should and teams, particularly in the Briar, were almost completing a game with uh, zero being on the scoreboard for their side. So last week in the slam, uh, a new tick rule was was put into place. And the fact that if a rock was touching the center line, it couldn't be ticked off till after the fifth rock was delivered. What was your opinion of that whole thing? How did it work? And where do you think it should go? I think it definitely worked well for the most part. I think the only time that um, maybe it evened the playing field as, as opposed to give, if, I mean, if you play an eight end game or a 10 end game and you're the better team and you've controlled the game and you have hammer coming home, you deserve to have an advantage coming home. But I, I think that no tick rule almost takes that advantage away. Um, we saw quite a few steals in the men's game last end and then again in the extra end for the win. And you never see that because the, the better team has taken control of the game and, and they're able to make the ticks and, and draw for their one and win the game. But um, you see a little bit more upsets there where that advantage is taken away. I'm, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it depends on how where we want to take the game. If if we want to move it towards more of a skins type play and, and just you got to make all your shots at every end, um, especially the last ones. Um, I mean, we could take the game there for sure. Yeah, it's a, definitely a good topic for discussion. Yes, I'm sure it's going to be discussed a lot in the weeks and months ahead. And I, I found it interesting. I thought to a very large degree, it seemed to force a lot of the play to the middle, at, uh, more so than usual, more like uh, to some degree mixed doubles. Mm-hmm. But uh, interesting for sure. And I'm sure that we're going to uh, talk a lot about it in the weeks ahead. Another question, you played mixed doubles a bit. And if my memory is correct, you were supposed to play with John Morris going into the 2018 Olympics. Were you not, by my memory? Yeah. Yes, And then, of course, you got into the, the four-person side, and John teamed up with uh, another partner and, and won a gold medal. So now we're heading towards 2018. Do you have any plans to uh, give mixed doubles a shot again for the uh, 2022 games? 
Yeah, I mean, we John and I were going to play in nationals this year, but um, obviously, I, I don't think I could have played right at right at nine months for mixed doubles <laughs> sweeping. <laughs> well, why not? What the heck? <laughs> I was I was watching it. I was watching the mixed doubles, and I was like, oh, it, it's painful to to watch and not compete when you know you just want to be there. And uh, I was like, oh, I, I totally could have. And, you know, she's she's not here yet. But uh, then I went into labor between the, the semi and the final. So I was like, oh, I, I wouldn't have made it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. No. But yeah, it was it was fun to watch. And I, I love to compete. And, and mixed doubles is a ton of fun. And John and I have had lots of success together. And, and we have a spot in the mixed doubles trials. And um, I'm looking forward to playing with him and trying to see uh, if we can be at the top of the podium that week. This is a crazy schedule because of the bubble that they're putting it, you know, all together. Of course, there's just been one event after another, and we're not done yet. Uh, Warren's brought up some good points uh, over the shows about uh, the scheduling of events and curling. Do you think there should be a big break with curling, with you know, two or three months off, like other sports, or would you consider that maybe it should go all year round? What's your take on that? I think a break is always a good thing. Yeah, even just for injuries and recovery. I think we play a lot as curlers and comparing other sports, we have a lot more games compared to times that we're able to practice Mm -hmm. because often we go back-to-back events and sometimes we go three in a row. I mean, injuries start to creep in when things like that happen and a little bit of burnout and fatigue. And so, yeah, I think it's a good topic of discussion. If you had more breaks in between events and it went all year round, that might work. But I think, I think people enjoy the, the time off for a few months and able to put in some off off ice training and, and fix some injuries and, and tend to some things that you need to. I mean, just like any sport has an off season. That's a good thing. You need a mental break and there's other things in life as well. It's not to <laughs> just eat, sleep sports. And But yeah, I think we could definitely look at <laughs> looking at less competition and more breaks in between that. I mean, you saw the success and, and the high level of curling and, and we had mm-hmm. so many months off um, no, and nobody was really able to practice even, but you saw lots of curlers that uh, didn't quite miss a beat and such amazing games at the Scotties and the Briar back and forth and big battles. And you wouldn't have known that these curlers hadn't been competing all year. Uh, and so, I mean, the, the bigger break in between events might lead to to better play and, and less injury. and. Hmm. At the end of the day, I mean, people are trying to run events and we want to support them and we want to be at all the slams and we want to be at all the, the TSN events. Um, so it's there's there's not many places that you can decline. Um, and so it just depends on how the schedule looks. But uh, I don't know what that's going to look like with COVID moving forward. It will be interesting to see. Yeah, that's definitely part of it, isn't it, going forward to this fall? But I sure agree with you with the with the – I guess the makeup of the season and how do we do it? And, and of course, as you know, somebody like me who played for a thousand years, um, hmm. injuries are a huge problem if you play too much. Yeah. And you're right, Rachel. I just don't know if it should be bigger breaks between or the summertime or, you know, the off season, if you want to call it uh, summertime or whatever the case may be. Um, Olympics, Olympics. Oh, I would really like to get into your mindset a, a little bit about. Uh, how you feel about that? Because the first Olympics I went to in 1992, we didn't get on the podium. And I don't think there's like a, a day that went by where I didn't think I couldn't wait to get back to another Olympic Games because once you get a taste of it, it's so different than any other sporting event in the whole world. I'd like to hear your thoughts because obviously the Olympics didn't go the way you wanted the first time. And, you know, you're obviously a favorite to get back there again. What do you think? Well, how does your mind work with uh with wanting to get back to the Olympic Games? I mean, same same as your mindset, really. Um, when you're a competitor and, and you want to be at the top of your game, always uh, the Olympics always stands out as as wanting to be the best in your sport uh, in the world. And just the pinnacle of being on the podium at the Olympics and getting a gold medal is something everyone dreams of. And, uh, I mean, becoming an Olympian is, is a great accomplishment. But um, obviously, we want more, and we want more for Canada and more for ourselves. But as you saw, kind of at, at men's worlds, it, it's it's a tough field. The world has stepped up, and there's no easy games. Everyone's gunning for Canada. Everyone's 
gunning for everybody at this point. Everyone is so good. There's, <laughs> you look across the board. I mean, 20 years ago, it wasn't the case. There wasn't uh, as many curlers and there wasn't uh, as much funding or emphasis put on the curling programs of other countries. But since then, I mean, they've just put everything into the game and you got to bring your A game every time. I think Botcher and as talking with Brendan and Darren a bit and, they said the maple leaf target is, is a real thing. Uh, everyone plays up to you and the games where you think, okay, this might be a little bit easier and they throw everything at you. And uh, it's, <laughs> it's tough. It's uh, but I mean, I'm up for the challenge. I, I want to be there. I, I want to be representing Canada. I want the maple leaf on our back and we're going to do everything we can to get there. And, and then to bring our, our absolute best and, we're excited and getting ready and, and hopefully with COVID and everything that we're able to have that opportunity and, and hopefully trials happens and it would be amazing if there were fans in the stands, but um, obviously all that is just an unknown right now. Well, it's the one thing for you left to do win the Olympic gold, Rachel. I thought I was looking at the wrong thing this morning when I was checking you out on, on Wikipedia and, you know, there's a bunch of stuff on there, you know, of course, your slam records and all this and, uh, you know, the, a million accomplishments that you've done. But it said your, your first curling team was in 2002. And then I did the math. Uh, I'm, you, you just turned 32, I think, in April. Is that right? I can't even remember. Your birthday? <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so sleep deprived. I can't even remember. Yeah. I, I was hoping I turned 30, but I think you're right. I think I turned 32. Okay. <laughs> okay. So when I do the math, That's perfect. when I do the math, you were, they're, they're showing your first curling team when you were like 11 years old that you curled. And I said, I've got to ask her, were you just doing back then? Was it just something you wanted to try? I mean, you're, you're hardly old enough to make any decisions, but you, you did this. And at what point in your long career, uh, early on, did you look at this thing saying, okay, I'm going to take curling on. When you started curling, was it always going to be curling? And, and and if so, when? At what point in your life did you decide to compete? Yeah, I, mean, I played all kinds of sports growing up, and curling was always there. And uh, kind of when you get to that age of 11, 12, 13, you have to make a decision, and um, sports start becoming year-round, and, and you have to make a commitment to one over multiple. I mean, I still played other sports for fun, and in the off season still still did some hobbies but yeah around that age started taking it a little bit more seriously and i mean it's not like i was 11 and gunning for the scotties um <laughs> i was 11 and we were excited to put a team together and, and see if we could we could win some games and i played with emma right away mm-hmm. and uh, the first deal that we played i think we won so that was a, a good sign of things to come since then, we just kept curling together and kept trying to find people that uh, were putting curling as, as a top priority. And we kind of just chose kind of even our university and school routes uh, around mm-hmm. curling and, and, and always put curling first. I mean, education is super important. And I've since done two degrees, but um, done that at a leisurely pace so that I'm able to curl and compete the way I wanted to mm-hmm. um, and and evolve as a player and as a person and obviously family is is right up there and obviously being number one but being able to to juggle that and have the support and we're lucky enough to have coaches and and support staff and family that were able to support us in our journey to be able to be where we are today i don't know at what point we kind of looked i mean through your juniors you're always just looking i think we just kind of stayed where we were so in juniors we Wanted to win juniors, uh, whether it was provincials and then nationals um, and then worlds. And once you're getting close to women's, you're starting to look at it. But at, at the time, we, will, I think now you can compete in both, but at the time we couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were always just keeping an eye on the Scotties and watching it and um, thinking one day maybe. And our first year out of women's, we were able to qualify for the Scotties. So that was a, a phenomenal feeling. And just trying to see how far we could go in the sport. And obviously the Olympics were in the back of our minds. And then as it got closer to that 2014 Olympics, we tried to see how far we could go and obviously came up short. Mm-hmm. It just lights a fire as a, as a competitive athlete that 
you just want to keep pushing and it's a four-year cycle so you have to wait quite a quite a long time before that opportunity comes up again um you're just trying to prepare yourself as best you can to be at the top of your game in the right moments and hope the the chips fall in the in the right way and you need to be as best prepared as you can you need a little bit of luck and uh lots of hard work and hopefully things work out but uh we'll see there's bigger things happening right now and with the global pandemic so that's uh the number one we want everyone to stay safe Earl Morris was uh, involved with a lot of your career and uh, particularly as a junior and I think into women's curling when did Earl become involved with you and was he involved in putting your your junior teams together and uh How'd that all work out? How, how'd that all that come to being? Our very first team with Emma, it was just our, our dads that chatted and we played in Little Rocks. I don't even know if it's called that anymore, <laughs> but <laughs> we played in Little Rocks against each other and, and Emma's dad, Art, I think phoned my dad to see if we could play in a tournament together and put a team together. And, and I think our parents kind of had more of a, a say in putting a team together. We didn't, we were just going out there and throwing rocks, but Earl is, uh, I mean, the Morrises have always been family friends. Uh, my brother played with John and in juniors, and uh, I've kind of known them since I was born. And so I think they joked early and said, you know, maybe one day Earl will coach Rachel when I was running around four years old in the curling club. And um, he was uh, still coaching and still involved in the game, and we jumped at the opportunity when he was able to coach us uh, right away and he was able to kind of lay that foundation and and that work ethic and the practices that you need to put in and really instill those basics in us right from the start and really laid the groundwork for us to evolve as players and we he was able to coach us on and off over the years and uh, he's definitely a big part of of where we are today and and how successful we were early and, and even how successful we are now and He's always been a huge cheerleader of ours and always get texts from him and uh, just like another dad. And he's just so supportive and, and knows so much about the game and is such an amazing coach. We're just lucky that he was able to be a part of our journey. Rachel, we're going to let you go. Before before we do, though, um, you've become a mentor to so many young curlers. You you are, when we talk about your story earlier that you said about when you were 11, 12, 13, putting teams together, if I'm a... 12 or 13 year old and I come to you and say I want to be I want to be just like you what would you be telling young kids Rachel who want to get into the game at at an early age like you did and compete I think to surround yourself with people and and support and I mean if someone is is offering to take you out and practice and help you in, in different ways I mean jump at every opportunity that's thrown your way you never know what to little insight or, or golden nuggets are there to be able to to grab onto and that might help evolve you as a player kind of be that yes person to jump at any opportunity i think and i mean you can't get around and get away from putting in the work and putting in you know just the repetitions and and laying the, the basics down of whether it's technical or going through the motions and getting that experience right you're, you're gonna have to lose a lot before you're gonna win and and learn from those experiences and really enjoy the, the process and the journey. It's not always going to be wins after wins. <laughs> you got to go through tough games and, and tough losses to be able to to get to that point where you're in finals and, and then you start winning them. And so I think it's enjoy the journey and make sure that you're surrounding yourself with teammates that uh, have similar goals and that you really enjoy being around and, and hanging out with and have fun with it. It's it's a fun game. It's a social game, and you kind of make friends all over the world. And it's uh, it's really kind of a unique sport where we're friends with a, a ton of our competitors, um, mm-hmm. and so it's it's really fun. And I've really enjoyed my journey through curling and all the people and places I've been able to travel and meet. It's been uh, a fun journey and a fun ride, and uh, I wouldn't have changed it. And so I think. Yeah, just trying to jump in and dive into everything you can. Growing is really my biggest advice. Right on. Rachel, thanks a lot for doing this. Uh, congratulations on you know an unbelievable career so far. Obviously, there's bigger and better things to come. We really appreciate you taking the time. Good luck this week uh, in the players. Congratulations on the Humpties. Uh, that's a record, 11. The uh, next closest is 9, I think, uh, Jennifer Jones. So you're well on your way to blasting the 
field with new records. So congratulations. And thanks a lot for coming on, Rachel. Good luck. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. Hey, thanks a lot. Good luck. See you later. Thanks, guys. I got to just run upstairs and get my iPad with the notes for the Stop. <laughs> I wonder what that means. What, like, um, that, that, that's gonna, code for something. Yeah, there's a I got enough. Code I got enough. I got. I get. I get breakout in hives enough when I hear Warren go, Jim. Okay, that just sets me up. Now I got you. Okay, now I got you. Almost. What did you do wrong? What did you... Takes a lot of management. <laughs> no wonder I smoke. Uh, oh, well, that was good. Well, fellas, uh, Warren, you've been around curling a long time. Um, how big is that accomplishment that where, where she went to the finals of the Scotties, pregnant, eight months, and then has a baby and comes back and wins the Humpties? I mean, in COVID and everything. What a remarkable young girl. Yeah, that's an amazing accomplishment. And I think it beds well for how good that team is probably that she has right now. And, and look out for them next year. I think Olympic trials is going to... Uh, be a tough one to deny them and uh, be very interesting to see how it goes. Kevin, do you see anything stopping this team? There's three or four teams in Canada that are absolutely fantastic and, and uh, they're one of them. And, and the only way you can stop a train like that is if, uh, if your train goes as fast, you know, for a team Anderson or a Jennifer Jones or a Tracy Fleury, that's really the only teams that I see that, that when Rachel's going her best can even have a chance of keeping up. They don't have any weaknesses on their team with Emma and Sarah and Joanne. They just, they, and they're sweeping. They're just strong from start to finish. Congratulations to her, and, and we'll be watching for sure. Kev, uh, give us uh, your take now. You hardly get to pause. We were going to do the show this morning, Warren, and Kevin said, no, I need to go to sleep. <laughs> um, so we're recording in the afternoon, but Kev, right back at it today. Uh, the Grand Slam is continues with the Prince's Auto Players Championship. Uh, starting now, uh, what's, what's your take? What's going to happen there, Kev? Who are we watching for? There's increased curl. They've uh, actually put quite a lot more curl in the ice uh, for the Players' Championship. They uh, definitely sanded the stones more aggressively to get more movement. So that will benefit other teams. When the ice is a little bit straighter at the start of the Champions' Cup, it was different teams. So, so that's kind of the neat part about curling is that... Uh, some people like more curl, some people like a little less. So I think playing conditions will have a lot to do with who ends up, uh, you know, getting to the playoffs in the end. Obviously, when it comes to the very best teams, the cream usually rises no matter what, but there are uh, teams that enjoy a little bit straighter ice, uh, like, say, uh, a De Cruz or, uh, or even yeah, Rachel actually likes it a little bit straighter. Um, and then the players is going to be more curl. And that's kind of more like uh, Bruce Mowat likes more curl. A botcher likes more curl. A team like uh, Terenzoni, they like it a little straighter. So, you know, teams just kind of uh, have a preference. And But the players, I know I was talking to Carrick today um, after they had their practice, and the ice was moving uh, around seven feet. So it, it was curling a ton. They're going to straighten it up a little bit, but uh, um, it'll be moving lots. Warren, are you doing your wraps again this week? You doing a wrap-up? Yes, we will be doing a wrap every day as uh, difficult and uh, and troublesome as it is to do all that. No, just kidding. We will be doing a wrap every day with some comments and uh, some observations of what's going on, for sure. Well, people love it. You're doing a great job. Uh, thanks to everyone. Inside Curling is reaching out to curling clubs all over the world and inviting you to contact us and ask to set up a one-hour Zoom call. Uh, we'd love to do it with me and Kevin and Warren to discuss anything you'd like. We've done well over half a dozen of these now, and uh, people love it. Uh, you can email us, uh, insidecurling at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter, uh, Facebook, and Instagram as well. Also, we'd like to thank a number of people, uh, including Amal, okay, who produces the show, and now he's keep, he's straightening me up, okay, Warren? He's, he's starting to take over from you and giving me crap all the time. <laughs> yeah, taking some of the weight off my shoulders. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is. Uh, let's thank Rod Paulson and his company, In-House Strategies, for all the great work he's doing on our social media. Uh, people love it, and we thank Rod. For doing that it's it's great we love it and it's very active and thanks a lot to sportsnet the show is produced by warren hansen the one and only amal delic thank you mixed and sound and uh our social media f- uh, for sportsnet is handled by jonathan brazo so thanks a lot boys you did well you did very well this week so you all get a gold star and we'll be back next week with another episode of inside Curl. thanks jim thanks jimmy 
Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now.